From NPR News, this is Foreign Dispatch, a weekly roundup of some of the best coverage of news and events filed by NPR's correspondents from around the globe. I'm Ted Clark. This week, a former Soviet republic is torn between Russia and the West. The Chinese government tries to force Western journalists to self-censor, and photographs reveal much about slavery in 19th century Brazil. It's been more than two decades since the Soviet Union broke apart. To the dismay of Russia, several former Soviet republics have pulled away from Moscow's influence. Now Ukraine, with 46 million people, has a chance to say goodbye to its Soviet past and align itself economically and culturally with the European Union. NPR's Corey Flintoff has this story of geopolitics, a jailed former prime minister, and millions of dollars in chocolate. Eighteen-wheelers idle outside the former Karl Marx Chocolate Works, ready to deliver loads of candy sold throughout Eastern Europe and the Middle East. The factory, in a shabby industrial neighborhood of Kiev, now belongs to Roshin, a giant Ukrainian company with about 3,000 workers and more than a billion dollars worth of business a year. Inside, the factory is bright, modern, and scrupulously clean. Workers in lab coats and hospital-style hair bonnets monitor machines that wrap individual chocolates in foil with a neat twist at each end. The glittering treats that tumble off the assembly line were popular in Russia, accounting for 5% of the market, until Russia's Consumer Protection Agency banned them. The Russians claim they found a hazardous chemical in the chocolate. No other country has reported any problem. The timing of the ban has raised suspicions. Ukraine must soon decide whether to sign a free trade agreement with the European Union this month. Russian's owner, Petro Poroshenko, is a strong supporter. Because our uh, opportunity to sign up the association agreement with the European Union is just the gate of possibilities, and maybe this is, it, it, it can happen once in uh, several decades. Poroshenko is a billionaire who holds an independent seat in Ukraine's parliament. He says association with the EU would force Ukraine to make democratic reforms, fight corruption, and bring its manufacturing up to European standards. This, in turn, would attract investment. But Russia wants Ukraine to join a Moscow-led customs union together with Belarus and Kazakhstan. And it's playing hardball. Besides the chocolate ban, Russia has imposed new customs rules on trucks crossing from Ukraine, backing them up at the border and driving up costs. Even if Ukraine can resist the pressure, association with the EU is not guaranteed. The EU has laid down a condition. Freedom for the jailed former prime minister, Yulia Tymoshenko, the heroine of Ukraine's 2004 revolution. She was an icon with her fiery rhetoric, beauty, and blonde braid coiled on her head like a tiara. She's been in prison since 2011 on charges of abuse of power for signing a gas deal with Russia that proved costly for Ukraine. The EU sees her prosecution as politically motivated, revenge for her bitter rivalry with President Viktor Yanukovych. The Orange Revolution that Tymoshenko led derailed Yanukovych's first attempt to win the presidency. It overturned the results of an election international observers said was rigged. 
Timoshenko, now 52, is suffering from severe back problems described here by her daughter, Yevhenya. When I see her, you know, I have to pick her up, move her, you know, help her to, to stand up, and it's evident that uh, any slight movement causes very sharp pain. German doctors who've treated her in prison say she needs surgery. EU negotiators have been shuttling to Kiev, hoping to persuade President Yanukovych to pardon Timoshenko and free her to seek treatment abroad. This is not likely, according to political science professor Alexei Haran at Kiev Mahila University. He says a freed Timoshenko could challenge Yanukovych in 2015. Actually, this is one of the reasons why President Yanukovych is not going to free Timoshenko, because he is afraid of him during presidential elections. And that fear is borne out by some opinion polls. Ukraine doesn't have much time to decide whether to sign the agreement with the European Union. EU mediators are preparing to report within the next few days on whether Ukraine has complied with the demands to free Timoshenko. Corey Flentoff, NPR News. We're going to spend some time now in a country where journalism is under pressure, China. Staffers at Bloomberg News accused their editors of spiking an investigative story to avoid the wrath of the Communist Party. And the wire service Reuters has confirmed that Chinese officials have denied a visa application for a hard-hitting reporter after an eight-month wait. NPR's Frank Lankford reports from Shanghai. Bloomberg staffers told the New York Times that editors had spiked a story that exposed financial ties between a tycoon and family members of top Chinese officials. Sources said Bloomberg editor-in-chief Matthew Winkler defended the decision, comparing it to foreign correspondents who self-censored to avoid getting kicked out of Nazi-era Germany. Winkler denied the accusations. He said the story, and another about the children of senior Chinese officials employed by foreign banks, are still active. Quote, what you have is untrue, he said in an email to the Times. Contacted by NPR, a Bloomberg spokesman would only say, quote, we have high editorial standards and these stories were not ready for publication. Any suggestion they didn't run for any other reason is absurd. Those denials, though, did not spare Bloomberg criticism. Next Media Animation, a Taiwanese company, put out a scathing video on the episode. It includes an animated Michael Bloomberg, the company's founder and outgoing New York mayor, kowtowing to a Chinese leader and a laughing panda. Emily Parker is a senior fellow at the New America Foundation, a Washington think tank. She says accusations of self-censorship go way beyond Bloomberg. I think there's going to be a tendency to really pounce on Bloomberg and to really take a, you know, just sort of shame on them and how could they do this. And I I don't really think that's the most positive way to discuss the story, because I think what's clear is that this is a much larger phenomenon. Parker says all kinds of organizations, including universities, publishers and Hollywood movie studios, are under pressure not to offend the Communist Party. And the risks are real. Both Bloomberg and the New York Times did prize-winning investigations last year on the hidden wealth of family members of top officials. China responded by blocking the company's websites and denying visas to new reporters. Bloomberg also lost money on its core business, selling financial information through the company's computer terminals. I think as China gets more powerful and as more and more people have vested interests there, it's going to be harder and harder to kind of speak out uh, independently. Orville Schell runs the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society in New York. He says China has growing leverage over those who rely on the country for revenue or for their livelihoods. Every media outlet must cover China to be in the big top. 
And if they get precluded, and this is true of individual journalists as well, whole careers can be completely destroyed uh, if you can't get access. Hi, I'm Paul Mooney. I'm a freelance journalist. I've been working in China for the last 18 years. Earlier this year, Reuters hired Mooney, who's written extensively on politically sensitive issues such as human rights. Mooney says Chinese officials spent an hour and a half interviewing him as part of his visa application. They asked about his views on Tibet. They even quoted from interviews he'd given. And then at the end of it, they said, well, we hope that if we give you the visa, that you'll report more objectively in the future. And to me, this is outrageous that a government would suggest something like this to a foreign reporter, that we have to report the way that they want us to report. Otherwise, we won't be welcome. Chinese officials told Reuters on Friday, which happened to be National Journalist Day in China, that Mooney would not get a visa. They gave no reason. This is going to have a, an effect on, on, I think, a lot of people. They're all going to be thinking about this when they go out and do their, their next stories. That if I write about you know, sensitive political issues, am I going to be able to get my visa renewed? You know, so I think it's definitely going to, it's going to send a chill down some people's backs. Mooney says the solution to all this pressure lies outside China. I think that the U.S. government and other governments have to stand up. If the U.S. government reciprocated by sitting on a handful of visas for Xinhua News Agency or, or CCTV or the People's Daily, I'm sure that within a week, all of the problems we're having with visas would be, be solved. California Republican Dana Rohrabacher has introduced a bill to that effect, but it hasn't gone anywhere on Capitol Hill. Mooney says when he raises the idea of visa reciprocity, U.S. diplomats are reluctant to retaliate against Chinese reporters. After all, it runs counter to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which guarantees freedom of the press. Frank Langford, NPR News, Shanghai. Coming up, to revive its economy, the Greek government bucks tradition and urges Sunday shopping. French consumers are urged to look for the Made in France label. And a 19th century photo exhibit reveals much about slavery in Brazil, especially if you look very closely. Sunday is traditionally a day for rest and family in most of Europe, including Greece. But now the government there wants to introduce Sunday shopping as a way to revive the economy. As Joanna Kakissis tells us from Athens, economics, not tradition, has many shop owners in Greece saying never on Sunday. Yorgos Sotirio's family has run an embroidery shop in the port city of Piraeus since 1945. These days, he also sells luggage and camping equipment, anything to keep sales up. So when Sotirio heard about the government's pilot program for shops to open seven Sundays a year, he signed up. But on his first Sunday, last weekend, he didn't even break even. On Sunday, I came on my own. We have three people as an employee, but I came on my own. Because you can't afford to pay them. Exactly. Because the, the Sunday working is 75% more on the wages, plus one day off. Like most businesses in Greece, Sotirio has been struggling to pay his bills since the country's economy began sinking into deep depression in 2008. Since then, it's been impossible to get credit, and taxes are as high as 50 percent. Sotirio says the choice is often between paying your bills and feeding your family. If this condition continues at least one year more, I'm not so sure I can be here. 
Just 32% of shops participated in the pilot program. According to the Confederation of Hellenic Commerce President, Vasilis Korkidis, Sunday openings could help shopping malls, where sometimes people spend the whole day. But family-owned shops, which are most businesses in Greece, can't afford to work Sundays unless they can attract tourists. We know that this year we had 18 million tourists that they visited our country. And we should follow these consumers since the internal consumption is very low because of the crisis. There is a place in Athens where tourists have gone for years and where the stores are always open on Sunday. So I'm here in the Monasteraki district in central Athens, just below the Acropolis, and it is packed today, so there are lots of potential shoppers. Now let's see if any of them are actually shopping. My name is Antonis Leontakis. Our shop is Cosmima. Leontakis's jewelry store has been open since 1997. And like Yorvo Sotiriu in Piraeus, he's had a terrible year. After the crisis, it doesn't matter if it is a Sunday or Saturday or Monday or whatever, yes. I see a lot of people out here today. Have you had a lot of customers? No. How many have you had? One. And yes, he was a tourist. The Greek Orthodox Church opposes the Sunday openings. The clergy would rather see people attend services instead of go shopping. As church bells ring on a Friday in Piraeus, Nikos Franzis is buying a birthday scarf for his mom at Sotiriou's shop. You know, he says, if we ever have an economic recovery and people have even a little bit of money again, I don't care if the stores are open 24 hours a day. For NPR News, I'm Joanna Kikissis in Athens. France is trying lots of things to turn its economy around, including some good old-fashioned economic patriotism. And, as NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports, it may even be working. The French economy suffers from weak growth, high unemployment, poor competitiveness, and a general sense of economic gloom. But every remedy the government proposes is met by protests from one corner or another. No one, though, seems to be arguing with a little injection of economic patriotism. For the last three days, the Made in France fair has enjoyed huge crowds at a giant convention hall in Paris. Well, we're in the Made in France fair. There's a little bit of everything. There are cars, there's food, clothing, toys. This is a movement that's been growing as people see companies closing, being relocated to places like Eastern Europe, China, of course. Many of the companies here are young and seem to be taking advantage of the new movement. The company's name is Mon Petit Polo Francais, My Little French Polo. That's Pierre Grandjean talking about an all-French clothing line started 18 months ago, though they're in competition with a much older brand making traditional Brittany sailor shirts and polos. Grandjean says domestic competition is not his worry. What, what is important is that the consumer understands that the Made in France is a real movement that is useful for the jobs for the economy and for the country. A recent poll shows that 73% of French people are ready to spend more to buy French. Made in France fair visitors Josette and Thierry Dupont are two of them. We've become distracted by cheap products for too long, says Josette. Now we want to put some more money down to have better quality. But the Duponts acknowledge that French taxes and labor costs force French companies to leave. Analysts say France has lost 750,000 industrial jobs in the last decade. 
For example, until 20 years ago, France had a thriving shoe industry, says shoe company owner Jacqueline Segal. Segal says the Made in France campaign is waking people up. They're starting to realize that they have to do it. It's either that or paying people unemployment. Damien Biro has brought his prototype hybrid sports car to the exhibit. And what does he think about the Made in France campaign? Uh, made, made in, in France. France. Yeah, it's, in, it's not even in French. Isn't it? <laughs> no, it's in English. In France, we have very good knowledge in engineering and handmade things. We very value the quality. In a way, we are very expensive, but it's on the long term very economic and useful. As we leave, my seven-year-old son and I pass a stand for Paris Cola, a fizzy brown copy brewed right here in the City of Light. How is the Paris Cola? My son is sampling Paris Cola. It's good. Is it as good as Coca-Cola? No. <laughs> Clearly, the Made in France campaign doesn't work for everyone. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. A new exhibition in Brazil is showing rare late 19th century photographs of slavery. The South American country was the last place in the Americas to abolish slavery. That period coincided with a photography boom, still a fairly new invention back then. What resulted is arguably the largest archive of photographs of slavery in the world. And as NPR's Lourdes Garcia Navarro reports from Sao Paulo, that is giving academics and ordinary Brazilians new insight into their country's past. The image has been blown up to the size of a wall. What was hidden in the original photograph is suddenly revealed. Things that you would never see, suddenly you can see. Uh, so let's go there, for example. Here you have a, a photograph of Ferris, uh, that it was one of the most impressive photographers from the 19th century Brazil. That's anthropologist Lilia Schwartz, one of the curators of the new exhibition called Emancipation, Inclusion and Exclusion. In its original size and composition, the image she points to shows a wide shot of a group of slaves drying coffee in a field. Their faces are indistinct, but the overall impression is one of order and calm. But once the picture is blown up, the expressions are clearly seen. Details emerge. A female slave is breastfeeding a child in the field. Clothes that look neat are seen to be in tatters. Expanding the photos, we can see a lot of things that we couldn't see and that the state didn't want to see. We don't, do not want to show slaves just like victims, but also to show how they could use agency, how they could negotiate the place, how they can try to show themselves using the body, using expressions. Slavery in Brazil lasted for 300 years, and it imported some 4 million Africans to the country. These images were taken during the waning days of slavery and Brazil's monarchy. Many were commissioned by the state in an attempt to show slavery in a better light. Sergio Burgi is with the Moreira Saias Institute, which donated the photographs to the show. He says blowing up the images shows the underlying brutality of the system. In another picture, slaves are lined up waiting to be taken into the fields. All are barefoot. In between them, once the image is enlarged, we can see many young children. It's incredible what you see, you know? the amount of uh, children very early that go out. The, you have to think necessarily how, do they, how would they manage uh, to take care of these children out into the field. The slave system is a system uh, based on violence. If you look here in the original format, what do you see? You see a lot of workers, very well dressed, 
And then when you look here, you can see like a sea of expressions, a sea of reactions. And you can see how violent can be the system. What's astounding about the exhibition is the variety of situations that slaves were photographed in, not only in the fields, but in their owners' homes, in the city, taking care of their master's white children. One of the most striking images is of a white woman sitting in a litter. The two slaves that would carry her through the streets of the city are standing next to her. One looks down in deference. The other man, though, is leaning against the litter, his hat tipped at a jaunty angle, staring straight at the camera. Lilia Schwartz. He's showing himself and saying, I'm not just like this. I'm another thing. I'm something different. I'm something else. The images in the exhibition were taken from 1860 to 1885. Slavery ended in Brazil in 1888. What we are seeing here, it was a very tricky moment because it was almost end of the slave system in Brazil. But those owners, probably the clients, they wanted very much to keep the slave system. Maria Elena Machado is a historian who also contributed to the exhibition. Late 19th century, even more brutal than before, because slavery was ending, was about to end, and uh, slave owners want to get as much as they can in terms of slave work. They are not concerned anymore about surviving. So who cares? You know, I need to get my money back. Machado says many slaves were running away. Others had formed armed bands and were revolting. And once these images are magnified, and you can see the look in the slaves' eyes, they're bearing. The battle, says Lilia Schwartz, is very evident. They don't want to show themselves like slaves. They were fighting for their freedom. So you have here a discussion about freedom. A discussion that, says curator Sergio Burgi, continues today with the people who have come to see the exhibit. People here in Brazil reacting in ways that are very interesting, saying, oh, that reminds me of my time as a, as a kid where I used to live in, in a rural area, that everything looks similar. He says even decades after slavery, blacks lived in the same conditions, and that legacy continues to resonate today. The exhibition runs through the end of December at the University of Sao Paulo. Lourdes Garcia Navarro, NPR News, Sao Paulo. For more international coverage, you can listen to your local NPR station. You'll find a list at our website, npr.org. And while you're there, you can find more international stories by clicking on News and World. For NPR News, I'm Ted Clark.